You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, let's... uh... It's good to see the numbers are down. There's no better way to thin out a class than to announce that I'm stepping in for Jess. So let's uh, open with a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Our Father, we thank you for this morning, for this time that we can have. We thank you for your word and its clarity on all things. We pray that you would give us now understanding, that your spirit would be our teacher and our guide, and that you would be glorified and pleased through our time and our study together here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And then I'm going to... Turn my phone off, because the last time that did not turn out well, did it? Okay, well, I'm a little, uh, had a busy week, and I get to fill in for Jess, and so anytime that I get to do adult Sunday school class, prepare a lesson for adult Sunday school class, and preach, and particularly because of the amount of study that this week required, I feel... um, Ah, ah, ah. That's kind of how I feel. <laughs> so bear with me as we sort of plot our way through this. Um, we're going to cover in the next three weeks, and I'm not, I'm not sure if this will take all three weeks or just two of them, and we can do a Q&A on this maybe. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. It depends on really how much there is to discuss and how much input you guys give. But we're going to talk about the subject of what happens to infants when they die or what happens to babies who die. And this is a question that I've been asked uh, as a pastor, from a theological perspective, because people are curious about that, and anytime somebody starts to think deeply about the issues of election and predestination or imputed righteousness and the sinner's responsibility to believe on the gospel, those subjects eventually will come around full circle to the question of infants. And then if that is how salvation is, and if it is by grace, and if it's by imputed righteousness and not a decision, then what happens to babies who die in infancy? And it's also something I've been asked from a pastoral perspective, because in our own church family, we've had this issue come up in years past. And I think that it is a pressing concern upon us simply because of the sheer number of infants that we know die in our world. Statistics show that 25% of all conceptions do not make it to the 20th week of pregnancy. 25%. That means for every four babies, one was miscarried, either knowingly, with knowledge, or without the mother's knowledge or the parent's knowledge, of those 25% that die prior to the 20th week, 75% of those don't make it past the 12th week. So that's quite a lot of infants just that die, that never make it through the whole, or they make it through conception, but they never make it through the whole birth process and come to, to life, or come to birth, I should say. They're obviously alive. The death at the time of birth is still a reality for many people all over the world. We are not impacted by this as much in Western civilization because of the medical technology that's so readily available to us in the United States and Canada. We, most people have their babies in a, in a hospital, and so if there's an issue or something happens, then they just simply can put it on life support immediately, and there's medical technology that allows parents to care for their infants right at the time of birth, but that's not the way it is in the rest of the world. According to one health, World Health Organization, and not the WHO, but a, a nationally recognized health organization, In 1999, 4,350,000 babies died at birth and the rest of all over the world. In most people estimate that that number could even be as high as 10 million babies a year that die at the time of birth. Those statistics are staggering to us because we live in a culture where we're really not faced with infant mortality in the way that the rest of the world faces that reality. And then you pile on top of that abortion, which happens in our country at a rate of 4,000 babies a year, No, 4,000 babies a day, sorry, not a year. 4,000 babies a day are aborted in this country, and we cheer that abortion rates have gone down, dropped, however minimalistically that might be. It's it's small compared to the amount of babies that are actually aborted. And then in the history of the world, you add up to that all of the murders of children, the wars, the disease, the plagues, and then the child sacrifices that took place in pagan religions for thousands of years. That's a lot of babies that have died in infancy, isn't it? I mean, it may be, it's very possible that there have been more children, more people that have been born or conceived and died 
than ever have been conceived and actually lived a full, healthy life. So those are some staggering numbers, and the question of what happens to an infant when they die becomes a pressing concern, and so we should address it. I would suggest that probably the number of babies who have been born and died or never seen the light of day and died in the womb or died at birth would number in the multiple billions in 6,000 years of world history. So this theological issue of what happens to a baby when it dies is a pressing concern. This is also a subject that I have had a little bit of a swing in my own understanding and my own theology of it as I've grown in the Lord and grown in my understanding of Scripture. And I want to tell you about the transition that has happened in my own thinking. When I went to Bible school, I had a lot of zeal and very little knowledge, and I was convinced that every baby that died in infancy or was aborted went to hell because all babies are sinners, and so if a baby doesn't live to the, uh, to the age of being able to understand the gospel and trust Christ for salvation, then that baby would be punished and go to hell. And its punishment wouldn't be obviously as drastic as somebody who had lived 80 years and rejected the gospel, and its punishment wouldn't be as severe as, say, a Hitler or a, or a Saddam Hussein or somebody like that, a mass murderer, a Pol Pot, but its punishment would be punishment nonetheless. That was where I was at the beginning of my Bible school years. Then by the time I got out of Bible school and started pastoring, I wasn't quite sure exactly how I felt about the issue. I wasn't still very really convinced that all babies went to hell, but I wasn't didn't really feel like I was convinced that all babies went to heaven. And so for quite a while, I sort of took a, sort of a middle-of-the-road approach where I said, I'm really not sure whether babies go to heaven or whether babies go to hell. Perhaps some go to heaven and perhaps some go to hell, or maybe all go to heaven and maybe all go to hell. I don't know that for sure. I just know that we can trust in a good and sovereign God who is the judge of all the earth and will do what is right. Then recently, it was about three years ago, I saw a book that John MacArthur wrote called Safe in the Arms of God, What Happens to Infants Who Die? I think that was the name of the book. Yeah, Safe in the Arms of God, What Happens to Infants Who Die? And uh, so I bought that because it was sort of a curious thing to me. I thought, well, maybe I'll see what MacArthur says about it. And then I put the book on my shelf, and I didn't get around to reading it until recently he aired a series of messages on Grace to You Radio along this, with the same title, on the same subject, which was basically his preaching of the material that's in the book. Or I should say his book is the printed material of what's in his preaching. So I listened to the series of messages, and I thought, that is phenomenal. That is the best treatment, the most theologically accurate treatment I've ever heard of this subject. And his position and my position is that all children who die in innocence, and we'll just, I'll define what innocence means, all children who die in innocence, and that would include babies in the womb, babies who have just been born, and even children who are alive maybe for several years or many years that do not have the ability to understand the gospel, understand the issues of law and grace and justice, all of those babies go to heaven, all of them without exception. So now the question for us becomes, what then or how do we address the issues of election and all of these things that play into it? And so that's kind of what we're going to do over here over the course of the next few weeks. And if I'm springing this on you and this is a sensitive subject and you're on the verge of tears because this is something that's very real to you, I would understand if you got up and left or you, you, you couldn't deal with this. I, I think that by the time we're all done with this, we're going to, I think it'll be of immense encouragement to you. My ignorance or my willingness to sort of take a middle-of-the-road approach and say I wasn't quite sure was due to the fact that I had never really taken a serious look at all the Scripture said on the subject of infants and really studied it out, taken each passage and looked at it and said, what are the implications of these passages? And I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm not even going to deal with the passage where David says of his son who dies uh, as a result of his relationship with Bathsheba, where he says of him, I will go to be where he is at, but he won't go, he can't come back to me where I'm at. We're not even going to deal with that passage. I think that passage actually teaches that David thought his hope was that he would go to be with his son, infant son who had just died. Just looking at all the other passages, and I didn't realize how many there were, I think is is really an eye-opener. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, let me say it as a, as a part of the introduction as well. I myself have never been touched by this tragedy. Now, obviously, I've never been uh, touched by having to deal with not being able to have children. And as far as I know, my wife and I have never miscarried a child. We have never lost a child in infancy. We've never lost a child after birth or at the time of birth or even any time since birth. We have four healthy children, and I consider that a blessing of grace. I don't know why God has spared me that tragedy that other people have had to wrestle through, but for whatever reason, he has. And so I'm sympathetic with people who have lost children and babies, but I, I obviously have never gone through that pain myself as much as I've 
watched other people go through it and, and cried. So I want you to know at the beginning of this, I'm borrowing heavily from MacArthur's book, Safe in the Arms of God, and I would recommend that book to you. It's an easy read, little short one like this. It's, it's blue. It's a little tiny thing that you can kind of carry around in your shirt pocket. Um, very thorough and, and very good, and I would recommend it to you. And only if you want it in reading it, you want to cry, because he tells some stories in there that will really just break your heart. Your heart, not mine. I don't cry. <laughs> All right, so we've got to... There are, we need to propose some answers to this question of what happens to infants who die. So let's just, let's just say we ask the question, and now there are a number of possible answers to that question. So I'll just sort of give you the answers, the possible answers, because really the answers to that question, what happens to infants who die or babies who die, falls into um, one of three or four general categories. First, it could be that some babies go to heaven and some babies go to hell. In which case, that would mean that elect babies, and I'm just tying in some theological issues now, elect babies go to heaven and non-elect babies go to hell. That could be a possibility. Or that babies, and some people take this position, that babies of Christian parents go to heaven and babies of unbelievers or pagans go to hell. That's one possible answer. I don't believe that. Second, it's possible that all babies go to heaven. And that would mean that all babies are elect. Or third, it's possible that all babies go to hell, in which case all babies are non-elect. Or a fourth possibility is that baptized babies go to heaven and unbaptized babies go to hell. Now, there are people who have believed that, which explains why my grandparents baptized me as fast as they could after I was born, because my, my grandparents were Catholics, and so they wanted to... I was born with a double hernia, and so I think it was within just a couple of days after I was born, they did an operation in which I almost died on the operating table. And my grandparents, of course, thought this was a horror of horrors that I might not live. And so they had me baptized in the Catholic Church. They were nominal Catholics at best. And so there are, there are people who, and, and this is really, if you get into the history of infant baptism, this is really, I think, where the idea of infant baptism came out of, is that you had this horrific infant mortality rate. And so how do we offer... How do we offer comfort to parents? What do we offer to them as far as solace regarding their babies who have died? Well, if you baptize the baby, then you get it christened and you get that grace extended through it through the ordinance of baptism and you can have confidence that that baby is saved. Rather than just looking at the scriptures and saying, well, here's what the passages teach about infants who die or all babies. Do you see any other possibilities other than those four that I've just given. Let's, we can do away with the it, 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 baptized infants go to heaven, non-baptized infants go to hell, because that's not what baptism accomplishes at all. So we can do away with that. We're basically stuck with three positions. Some do, some don't. All do or all don't. That makes sense? Okay, so it's my position that all do. Not that all don't and not that some do and some don't, but that all do. And so that's where I'm going to be heading and that's where I'm sort of laying out my case in the next couple of weeks. Let's begin by building a theological foundation for this. Go to uh, Psalm 22, Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. We're going to look at two Psalms, Psalm 22 and Psalm 139. Psalm 22 and Psalm 139. I begin with the premise that God is sovereign over all of life that it is God who opens the womb and closes the womb. And you see this taught in Scripture. God opens the womb and closes the womb. So if a couple is unable to conceive and bear a child, that is by God's design, by God's intention, for whatever reason that might be. It's painful for the couple, and, and I, don't, I don't slight that in any way. That's a painful reality for couples to deal with, especially couples who really want to have children. But at the end of the day, we say that God is sovereign over this. He allows this to happen, and he doesn't. You see it in the book of Gen- even from early in the book of Genesis, where God says, it says, oh, God opened the womb of so-and-so and she born or conceived and bore a child. Or God closed the womb of so-and-so so that she couldn't bear and conceive a child. So the reality is that God is sovereign over all of life. Look at Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So there is God involved in the, in the sovereign bringing forth of, is this David? Uh, yeah, Psalm of David. This is God bringing forth David from the womb, and David sees God's hand involved in that. You brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust one upon my mother's breast. By you I was brought forth. 
David sees and attributes all of that, his conception, his delivery, his birth, all of that, to the hand of God in his life and God's sovereign control over all things. Then look at Psalm 139. And Psalm 139 is worth a three- or four-week study all in of itself. This is, look at verse 13, beginning of verse six, uh, 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as not yet there was one of them. So who writes my days down in his book? God does. David says, you saw me in the womb. You brought me forth in the womb. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You saw my unformed substance. Everything about his conception and his development, even in the womb, before he was ever born, David says, all of that was your handiwork. God did all of that so that the child that is born with a defect is born with a defect by the design of God because God allows that to happen. And it's not that it takes him by surprise. God is sovereign over all of that. The child that is born handicapped is born handicapped by the sovereign hand of God. He knits the child together. So the child that is born with a birthmark, that birthmark is part of the tapestry of God's work. His hand is involved in all of that, and he's sovereign over it. So if you're born short... You're God's handiwork being short. If you're born tall, you're God's handiwork being tall. You're his masterpiece. So if God is involved in knitting together your unformed substance, if he opens the womb and closes the womb, if he is sovereign over life and he is the one who gives life and takes life away, if he's sovereign over all of those things, then we can trust him for what happens to babies. And that's, that's the theological foundation that I'm trying to put down here. Second, God knows the baby in the womb. So not only is he sovereign over all of life, but he knows the baby in the womb. You see that from Psalm 139 there. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1, and we're going to be flipping around more than, more than you're used to, I know. Jeremiah chapter 1, and while you're flipping there, I'll remind you of Galatians chapter 1 verse 15, where Paul says, God set me apart from my mother's womb. So here, here's God saying, or Paul saying, God knew me, and he loved me, and he set me apart, he sanctified me, he had a purpose for me even from my mother's womb. The biblical authors universally, all of them, acknowledge that God is sovereign over life and death, it is God who opens and closes the womb. It's God who gives life. It's God who takes life. It's God who knits us together. It's God who fashions us. It's God who knows us when we're in our mother's womb. And it's God who loves us and cares for us and sets us apart for his purposes, even from the, the womb. Look at Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now who formed Jeremiah in the womb? God formed him in the womb. So if Jeremiah is a tall man, that's by God's design. Jeremiah is a short man, that's by God's design. Jeremiah is a homely man, that's by God's design. Jeremiah is a handsome man, that is by God's design. If Jeremiah had a birth defect, that was by God's design. If Jeremiah was born with one arm, that is by God's design. It's God who forms us in our mother's womb. And sometimes he uses birth defects to do that. But every life is precious, he is sovereign over it, and it's God who weaves that tapestry together even in the mother's womb. Verse 5 again. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Even before Jeremiah was born, God knew him. God was sovereign over him. God fashioned him to be the man that God wanted him to be. Now, that either applies to all people or only applies to some. What do you think it applies to? I believe it applies to all people. All people. Every baby that's born is fashioned by the hand of God in the womb of his mother. It doesn't just apply to Jeremiah and Paul. It applies to everybody born with defect, without defect, with a congenital disease where the baby is going to die or without the congenital disease where the baby is going to live, that all of that is true. Thomas? How do you address um, like a cocaine baby? A cocaine baby. So a baby that whose mother's done cocaine before it was She's born. The same biblical the same biblical truths apply. That baby is precious in the sight of God, and God has allowed that baby to be born and conceived. He opened the womb at that time for that purpose, to allow that baby to come into existence. Whatever his purpose in that was, it's it's good. The, the only way you can take solace or comfort for a cocaine baby is to know that if that baby dies, that baby is going to um, that baby is going to go straight into the arms of God immediately. Dorothy? Oh. Well, I don't know if it would be the book of life or 
if it's if it's just a, a a way a poetic way for David to say um, all my days are marked out and numbered for me. I'm not going to add anything to my days. I'm not going to subtract anything to my days. Before it's my time to go, I'm immortal. I'm invincible. Nobody can kill me before it's my time to go. Before it's my time to go, it's my time to go because all my days are written before there was one of them. From eternity past, every day was marked out for me, the day of my birth and the day of my death, and I can't change that. And I think that's what David's getting at. He, he's sovereign over not only his being wrought in his mother's womb, but he's sovereign over the timing of David's life, the day in which he was born. He wasn't born a day early or a day late. He was born right on time, and David will die right on time, and he knows that. Yes? That bent. Yeah, the question is, uh, what do you say to a parent who says, my child was born with a homosexual bent or propensity? Um, I would say that, first of all, I, that's never been proven. There are scientific studies that say that that's the case. That's never been proven, that somebody is born with a homosexual bent. Grant that it's true, does that mean homosexuality is okay? It doesn't. If somebody is born with a bent to rape women, then we say, well, he was born that way. He's just a rapist. That's the way he was born. We don't justify the rape because this guy happens to have a propensity to rape. We don't justify child molesting because somebody's born with a propensity to child molest. I'm born with a propensity toward all types of sin, but there's still sin. And the issue is I have to rein in my sin and I have to mortify my sin. And I have to control myself, and I need to be saved, and I need to be sanctified, and I need to crucify the flesh, or die to myself, and allow the old man to be crucified and get saved. That's how you deal with sin. So whether you're born with a propensity to any particular sin or not is irrelevant. Uh, the person who says, I was born, uh, born with a homosexual bent, well, then you need to rein in your homosexual desires, and you need to fabricate new desires. You need to get saved and pray that God will give you new desires. Yeah, no. Well, they try and justify the they try and justify the idea that homosexuality is okay by saying that was by God's design, and then that's that's a that's a non-starter. It's a non-sequitur for one. It doesn't actually follow just because somebody's born with a propensity to do something that that sin is therefore okay, or that that was God's intention for them to live that way. And it's a non-starter from the perspective that that it doesn't matter whether they're born that way or not. It's irrelevant to the, the morality of the issue at hand. John. Yeah. Yeah. Dave. I've had this talk with people about that subject. I said, if you look at the scripture, the Old Testament, and the New, when God speaks against homosexuality, it's a strong term. Mm -hmm. But uh, and Christ healed the, the, the blind, the lame, the leper, uh, the deaf, and so on. These were physical defects that he healed. He never healed a homosexual. Yeah, yeah, from homosexuality. Right. It's a difference between sin and a physical defect. Yeah. So let's let's jump back because we're far off field here talking about homos people born homosexuals, and that's not the point. We want to get off on that right now. But so let's get back. Does that answer your question, Thomas? And yeah. Okay. Um, so the first first theological truth for our foundation is that God is sovereign over all of life. Second, God knows the baby in the womb, has a purpose and plan for the baby in the womb, even though we may not know it. And second, that God does all things good. We've got to come back to the theological understanding that God is good. And we may not understand the goodness of all of his ways or how that fleshes out or the implications of that are, but we can know that God is good and that all things that he does, everything he does is for our good and for his own glory. And I am absolutely convinced, and I tell this to people all the time, I'm absolutely convinced that if we could step out of time and into eternity and see the grand picture from God's perspective right now, the way he sees it, if we could get a glimpse of what we will know and we will see in heaven, we would say, I would not want anything different than exactly how it has unfolded. If we could get God's perspective. The pain comes in us not being able to get God's perspective. We're not having God's perspective. That's where the uncertainty comes in and, and we experience the pain of, of dealing with these issues. Okay? So God is sovereign. God is good. And this, by the way, the sooner you nail those truths down in your own thinking, the better off you'll be. You don't want to wait until you're in the middle of tragedy before you start trying to wrestle with these issues. Once you put your, those two pegs in the wall, my God is sovereign and my God is good, and I'm going to hang everything on those two things. Once you hang those on the wall and you, never, you refuse to take those things out, they'll walk you through a lot of tragedy. But if in your mind God doesn't know the future and he makes mistakes and he's not necessarily looking out for my good, and if, if all of those doubts enter your mind, 
then you're going to be unable to walk through those difficulties because you're going to be constantly questioning the two things that are intended by God to get us through every tragedy and suffering, and that is that God is sovereign and that God is good. Okay, so let's look now at how Scripture speaks of children, and let's look at some of the passages, and we've got, what do we got? Oh, man, we got ten minutes in as many passages. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, twenty-five minutes? 10.30? Yeah. Well, I have to go uh, download my sermon offline between Sunday school and church, so. <laughs> Told you it was a busy week. Turn turn to Ezekiel, chapter 14. Got to have a little bit of time there. Sorry, Ezekiel, chapter 16. Yeah, we are taping it. We'll see at the end whether it's worth taping or not. We'll find out. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. Why'd you ask that, by the way? Oh, okay, good. Ezekiel 16. Let me give you sort of a summary of the passage before we look at verse. We're going to start in verse 4. This is the, the Lord describing how um, he picked up the Israelites. He's, he's using a metaphor of a birth analogy to describe what he did with the nation of Israel finding in its in its infancy, abandoned, and how God felt compassion on them, the infant, which is in this case in the picture, is Israel. And he scoops in, and he cleans it up, and he cares for it, and he nurtures it along. Ezekiel 16, verse 4, As for your birth, now he's speaking of the nation, but keep in mind he's, he's using an analogy, and this is this is where the analogy of the birth and the child comes in. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. So it's bloody and in all of the birth stuff. You you were not rubbed with salt, which they would do in those days. They would rub a newborn infant down with a salty mixture in order to clean the skin, in order to, to purge it, to, I don't know, pickle it or preserve it or whatever they were they were going to do. Clean it up and kind of and, and make it look good and smell good. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in clothes. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Now look what God does in verse 6. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field, and you grew up, became tall, reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And then I passed by you and I saw I, I, I had a love for you at that time. Verse 8, I spread my skirt over you, covered your nakedness. So here's a picture of God seeing an infant and feel an infant that is abandoned by its mother and is squirming in its blood. It's just been born, hasn't been rubbed with salt. The umbilical cord hasn't even been cut yet. And God in his compassion reaches down, scoops in, picks this up and has compassion on this infant. That's the picture of the analogy. Okay, so what I want you to see is two things. Number one, the analogy is a picture of Israel itself, and God is showing what he did with Israel. When you were nothing, you were least among the clans of the earth, God says, and yet I chose you, I formed you, I nurtured you along, he brought them to full maturity as a nation in Egypt and delivered them from Egypt and gave them a land, he dressed them up, he did all of these things for them. That's the analogy that God is using. But an analogy only works if it's somehow rooted in truth. And so the, the principle of truth behind the analogy is that God has compassion and care for infants. This is how God himself feels about children. God is not distant without any feeling toward infants or babies. And what God is doing is he's saying, this is how I feel toward infants. And that analogy works for Israel because of God's, God has, it would have compassion on the infant. And so he would have compassion on the nation of Israel. Do you see the analogy? Do you see what the, the analogy is intended to show? It shows God's heart of compassion and love for the infant that is abandoned by its mother in the picture. Now keep in mind as we go through this, because there's a couple analogies that we'll, we'll be looking at. As we go through this, keep in mind that an analogy only works if it is somehow rooted in truth. Right? It wouldn't make any sense for me to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me just as pigs can fly. Because if pigs can't fly, then the analogy breaks down, right? Okay. So anytime you see an analogy in Scripture, you're looking for the truth, the true principle that that analogy rests upon. Uh, if I say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me just as the sun comes up in the east. Right? The sun does come up in the east. You can count on that. You can bank on that. So I can bank on the promise that I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. So there has to be a truthfulness behind the analogy. The truthfulness behind this analogy is how God speaks of children, his compassion for them. Okay, turn to 
Ezekiel 16. We're still in Ezekiel 16, but go down to verse 20 and 22. Moreover, you, now this is after God has done all this for the nation of Israel. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. While your, were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Now what is, what is Ezekiel describing? It's child sacrifice, right? Practiced by a lot of pagan religions from the beginning of time all the way through, and there are still religions today that practice child sacrifice, and this is not even something that was done away with the dawning of modern technology. There are still pagan tribes that practice these rites and have that type of a disregard for life. And so here Israel had got caught up in child sacrifices, and after God describing his own care for them as an infant, what does he turn around and do? Yet look how you treat your own infants. This is how I treated you, but look how you treat people who are in a similar condition. You give birth to a child, and you cast it off, and you sacrifice it to idols. But I want you to look at how God speaks of the children that these pagan idol worshipers were sacrificing to idol. Verse 20, Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me. See that? You had borne them to me. Uh, and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children. Now this is how God is speaking of children that are born to pagan idol worshippers. These are you say, well, these are Jews. Well, yeah, they're Jews, but they're not believing Jews. They're not Jews after the way that Abraham was a Jew. These are people who had Jewish of Jewish descent. Probably many of them circumcised. They were of the Jewish tribes. All of that is true. But these are pagan idol worshippers. These aren't Yahweh worshippers. These aren't God worshippers. These are pagans who are sacrificing their babies to idols. And God says, those were my children. Now, I don't take that lightly. If God calls those children his, then they were his children. He says, you, you bore them to me, they were mine, and you've, you've killed them. Now, if killing a child, whether it's a child of a believer or a child of an unbeliever, in this case it's the children of unbelievers, if killing a child, if God views that as killing his child or the child that was born into him, how serious does that make crimes against children? Killing a child or even abortion. You see the seriousness of that? Woe unto you who would kill 4,000 my children each and every day. This is a serious, serious crime because God views a crime committed against an infant as a crime committed on his child. You bore those children to me. They were mine. They're not his because they were believing parents. These are pagans. But God calls the children of unbelievers, of pagans, his own. They were mine. You bore them to me and you killed them. That's serious, isn't it? Okay. So how does God view children of unbelievers? Infants of unbelievers as his own children, the same as infants of believers. And God looks on them com- as, with compassion. You remember the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, verse 11? Right? Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, in which there are all these people, and all the people who can't tell the right hand, how much it, uh, just preached on this a while ago, 120,000 persons who can't tell the difference between the right hand and from the left hand? Those are children. Those aren't people who can't discern the difference between between uh, um, right and left and not mentally retarded people. They're not people who can't discern the difference between right and wrong. They're infants or children who don't even know the difference between right and left. And God God looks at them and says, I have compassion on that city because there are children in that city. And that's how God feels about children. Okay. And then these same people, or these same infants, by the way, God refers to them as innocent. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 34 also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. He's condemning the nation of Israel for their child sacrifice. And he says, on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. Jeremiah 19, verse 4, Because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices to other gods than they that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. That's the child sacrifices. So God calls infants innocent. That's how he describes infants. Innocent. So first of all, they're my children. I ought to have compassion on them. You bore them to me, and they are innocent. Now, are they still sinners? They're still sinners, but are they innocent, or are they guilty of a crime as an infant? They're innocent. They're still sinners, but they're innocent. Next week, we're going to kind of try and tie those two things together and see how both of those can be true. 
Now, somebody may say, but that, of course, applies to children of the elect nation of Israel. And so today, children of believing parents or elect parents or Christians would be considered innocent, would be considered God's children, but not necessarily the the children of pagans or unbelieving parents. How would you respond to that? What have we just observed from the text? Are these believers or unbelievers? Are they Jews? They were part of the elect nation, but they weren't elect individuals, were they? There's a difference between a nation being elect and individuals being elect. Israel was an elect nation, but it was not necessarily filled with everybody that was born an Israelite, was a true Jew and a believer in God and had the faith of Abraham and was saved. Not all Israel is Israel. Not every Jew born is a saved Jew. Only the Jews who have circumcised heart and repent and believed on their God and took God at his word were saved. But these are unbelievers. These are pagans. These are idol idol worshipers, idolaters. So though they were Jews, they were unbelieving Jews. They were pagan Jews. They were unsaved Jews. They were just as pagan and idolatrous as any Gentile out there. They had no favor with God simply by by nature of the fact that they were Jews or of Jewish descent. So I would say that the things that we read in Ezekiel about them being God's children and them being innocent applies to believing children of unbelievers and children of believers as well, all infants. Any questions or comments on that before we move on? That passage? Chris? His people. Um, there's one example here in Job, which we'll get to in a second. Um, my answer to that, because you're playing devil's advocate, and I understand where you're going, maybe maybe God's calling them his children is simply a reference to his way of saying, they're my children by virtue of the fact that they were born to my covenant people. And that could be true, but I think it fails to do justice to the fact that these parents of these children were not believing Jews. So they were outside of the covenant because that covenant, though Israel was an elect nation, not everybody who was born a Jew was God's child in any sort of a salvific sense just by virtue of the fact that they were a Jew. Being a Jew didn't give you anything other than um, being part of the elect nation. But the, the purpose of the elect nation was not to save everybody in the nation. The purpose of the elect nation was that the nation would be used to bring the Messiah into the world as a channel of blessing and that they would be a tool of event to evangelize their neighbors. So there's a difference. I would still go back to the distinction between the elect nation and elect people. Um, does God call anybody, any children who are not Jewish children his own children? Sorry, hold on. Let me say that again. Does, anybody, does God ever call children of Gentile pagans his and I would say we have, other than this example in the book of Job, which I would say uh, seems to point to that, and look at it in just a second, I would say no, we don't have a record of that, but only because everything we have written in the Old Testament is directed toward the nation. So God was correcting them, addressing that to his elect nation, but he's still referring, this is how he refers to infants, the infants. And I, I don't think, I think it would be too limiting to say that, okay, well, it just refers to the infants of those, those Jewish, because they're, by virtue of the fact that they're just Jews. It has to refer to them being infants by, or refer to them by virtue of the fact that they're infants. They are innocent. Right. The, oh, before you said something there, I had a real brilliant thought. The, what was it? Let me go back and trace my thinking real quick. The, uh, let's move on. And if it comes to me, I'll stop and we'll jump back to it. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 4, and I do want to get to Job 
three before we are too far gone here. First uh, Kings chapter 14. Does that answer your question at all, Chris? Okay. Oh, 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 I know what it was. Here we go. <laughs> the innocent, the, uh, God, God would not call the children of Jewish people, even though pagan idolaters, innocent just because they're Jews. In other words, the children of Jewish people are no more innocent than the children of Gentile peoples. So God could not look at an infant who was born with Jewish parents and say, well, he's innocent. But he's innocent by virtue of the fact that the nation's elect. That description of him being innocent would have to apply to Jewish babies and Gentile babies because it's not being a Jew didn't make you born innocent. You're still born a sinner. Does everybody catch that? So by virtue of that fact, I would say that description of it being innocent has to apply to both Jews and Gentiles. And later on, we're going to get into the issue of eternal justice and how this description of innocent plays into that, the hell and its purpose and all of that. Okay, Joe, uh, where are we at? First Kings 14. Is that where I told you to go? All right, I better go there. First Kings 14. Verse 9. Let me give you an overview. This is a judgment upon the wicked king Jeroboam. And it's communicated through the prophet Ahijah. And they were to, the house of Jeroboam was to die a despised death of not having a proper burial. And yet there was one exception to Jeroboam's, the judgment upon Jeroboam's household. And that was his infant son who was spared because, as you'll see in the text, God says something special about that infant son. So look at verse 9. Is that where we start? Let's start in verse uh, 7. Go say to Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you and you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images and provoked me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel, and I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it's all gone. Anybody belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, uh, dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Now you arise, go to your house, and when your feet enter the city, Okay, let's stop right at verse 11. Stop at the end of verse 11 for just a second. So what was the judgment for Jeroboam? I'm going to wipe it clean, the whole house of Jeroboam, right? Everybody's going to die, and you're going to die in the city. The birds are going to eat. The dogs are going to eat you. In other words, you're going to die the most despised death imaginable. That was to die and not have a proper burial. And that day it was horrible to not have a proper burial. Because the Jews revered the body and believed in the bodily resurrection, as we do, they treated the body with reverence and respect. That's why Joseph told um, the children of Israel, bring my bones up into the promised land with me when you go. They knew the future resurrection. They believed in the resurrection of the body, and so they treated it with reverence. Well, for God to say, I'm going to judge you to the extent where everybody's going to die. I'm going to wipe your household clean, and your bodies are going to be eaten and consumed by the vultures and by dogs and by birds and all of that. That was a horrible judgment in the mind of any Jew, because to have your body consumed and left open like that to be desecrated was a horrible, horrible judgment. But that's what God said he's going to do, because Jeroboam did not follow the Lord his God with all his heart. Verse 12, now you arise, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child will die. All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. So who is going to be exempt from that judgment? The infant child. The child's going to die. He is going to get a proper burial. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him, for he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave because in him something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. And you see how God describes that one child in the house of Jeroboam. In him, something good was found. So he's going to be, he's the one exception. That child that's going to die is the one exception. In him, something good was found to the Lord as God of Israel. Now, how old the child was, I don't know. What it was that was in that child that God saw, I don't know. It's not any righteousness in the child itself, is it? It's nothing in the child that makes it righteous. Maybe it was um, something that God was doing in the heart. Maybe the child had some sort of a, a godly, righteous aversion to what Jeroboam was doing. Maybe the child just simply was innocent, as God describes in Ezekiel chapter 16. But in him, maybe it was childhood innocent or infant-like innocence, God says, in him was found something good to the Lord his God. And so he's going to receive a proper burial. He's still going to die, he's still going to sweep clean, but the judgment that's coming upon the house of Jeroboam 
is not going to be like for that child because that child was special to the Lord his God. Some of you have a question? Okay. So, uh, are you talking about in the land of Canaan when the Israelites came in that they wiped them out? Or are you talking about judgment upon select tribes? Yeah, I can't remember. I don't know what that is off the top of my head, which tribe that is. Or even what you're referring to. I'm not, I'm not certain. If you have it next week, if you can find it by next week, let me know. Yep. Yeah, they weren't one of the twelve tribes though. That was Jacob's brother. So Esau would be wiped out. Oh, uh, uh, people, descendants of Abraham, other than the descendants of Jacob. Oh, yeah, they they were wiped out. Esau was, the descendants of Esau was wiped out, were wiped out. The Edomites. Okay, well, let's go to Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, and we'll go through verse 19. Um, you remember, you know, you know the context of Job. Job's had everything wiped out. Everything could go wrong, went wrong for Job. Yet God was sovereign in all of it. He allowed all of these things to happen to Job for a purpose and for a reason. And though Job never sinned with his lips, he did express what he, exactly what he was feeling in the aftermath of everything that God had allowed to come upon him. So look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me and why the breasts that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept and I would have been at rest. Okay, now here's Job, and this is this gets to Chris's because this is Job is pre-Abraham. Job is before Abraham. Job is not a Jew. Job would be a Gentile in that sense. In other words, he's not part of the elect nation. And yet Job could say, rather than all of this stuff happening, I would have been better off if I had died at birth. Rather than that I should live and experience all of this. Death for me at birth would have been preferable. And why does it say that? Verse uh, 13. Why would death have been preferable? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, a reference to sleep there, and I would have been at rest. He's not teaching soul sleep. He doesn't. Job doesn't say I would have been in tor- torment. There's nothing. Hell would be worse for Job than what he was going through. And yet Job says I would have been better off to die in infancy. Why? Immediate rest. That would have been preferable to what I'm going through. I would have rather died at birth than have to suffer through this. Look at verse verse 14. With kings and with counselors of the earth, and there he's describing, of course, the sleeping with being among the dead, who, who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who were filling their houses with silver or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw light. And there the wicked cease from raging. There the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. He's describing death, but he's describing death for him as an infant as a place of rest. So Job's describing two things. Sheol, the place of the dead, where all these other people are at. And yet Job says, for me, it would have been a place of rest. Because there the the wicked don't toil. I don't have to hear the taskmaster. He's describing a paradise that he would have been at, which would have been way preferable to the suffering that he was enduring. And yet, if Job believed that hell would have been his destiny as a stillborn child, he would never have described it with this type of language. He would never have been able to say it would have been better for me to die than for me to have lived and suffer this, because this suffering that he was going under now was way preferable to hell. Yeah. Yeah. He understood a lot of things. He understood that he would see in his flesh his Redeemer and that he would see it with his own eyes. He understood bodily resurrection and the sovereignty of God and a lot of those things. Okay, so I already took the time that you allotted to me. And we, Job 3, there's Ecclesiastes 6, and then we'll get into four chapters, four passages in the book in the New Testament next week. And then we still have to deal with, and this is where we're going in the weeks to come, 
Why then did God command the death of infants as acts of judgment in the Old Testament? Going to wipe out every man, woman, and child. Right? We need to deal with that. How does that factor into all this? And how does the doctrine of election play into all of this? Uh, does that mean that all babies who die in infancy, who go to heaven, are automatically elect? And does God elect them because they're babies? Or, or how, is that covered? how is that covered with election? And then on what basis is a child saved if they never have the opportunity to trust and respond to the gospel? Right? How is a child saved? Listen, an Arminian, I'll give you a quick glimpse, an Arminian has no answer for that. If you think that what saves you is your decision, that work of faith that you do, on what basis can you say that an infant is saved? An Arminian has no answer for that. But for a Calvinist like myself, it's all by grace. My decision didn't save me. My decision was simply the manifestation of the grace of God was already at work in my heart. My decision, I don't believe in decisional regeneration. Well, it's not my, save, it's not my decision that saved me. Nor was it an act of human faith or reason that saved me. All of that is the gift of God. So as a Calvinist, it's all by grace. So somebody asked an Arminian, how is a child saved? What is he going to say? An Arminian has to go back to default mode which say, well, the child was not a sinner or was born good. It's not born good. As a Calvinist, I can't say that it was born good. It's conceived in wicked, as a wicked sinner, but it's innocence. And so as a Calvinist, I can say that child is saved by grace. An Arminian doesn't have really an answer for that, not one that's theologically consistent. Well, yeah, we, 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 deal with it. we have to deal with the age of accountability, too. That's coming up. So, good one. And then, how can they be innocent if they are born sinners as well? And we'll look at the rest of these passages and a couple others. So, let's close in prayer, and then we'll be done. Our Father, we do thank you for this day and for our discussion on these things. We do pray that you would encourage our hearts together in these things as we weigh them out and think them through. We trust that you will use them for your purposes and for your glory, and that um, we might come to an understanding of what your word teaches about these things and the understanding that's theologically consistent and one which will be of comfort to our hearts and enable us to comfort others who go through these trials and these sufferings that you have allowed for your purposes. We commit our time and ourselves together uh, to you this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.